us if you don't want to um, do that now. And, and for those of you who uh, have kids, we love having kids in the sanctuary. And so there is a little bulletin for them that you can grab on the tables in the back. We started last week kind of reading through our confession. And last week we looked, we began to look at what our confession says uh, as it relates to the Holy Scriptures. And, and when we read our statement of faith or we read this, this confession here, we need to be reminded that it summarizes for us um, key uh, scriptures and, and, and arranges them systematically so that we can, um, we can get a sense of uh, what the scriptures teach. And so I wanted to read to you the second paragraph of chapter one as it relates to the Holy Scriptures. Again, we, we read paragraph one last week. This is what the second paragraph says. It says, under the name of the Holy Scripture, and it's seeking to answer, what, what do we mean when we say Holy Scripture, what books are we talking about? Okay, it says, under the name of Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are these, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. That's the Old Testament. The New Testament consists of these books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Acts of the Apostles, Paul's Epistle to the Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, to Titus, to Philemon, the epistle to the Hebrews, the epistle of James, the first and second epistles of Peter, the first, second, and third epistles of John, the epistle of Jude and Revelation. And the confession closes with saying, all of which are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. And, and what undergirds that is 2 Timothy uh, 3.16. And so when we speak of the Holy Scriptures, we mean those particular books of the Bible. But with that said, why don't you, if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Esther. Turn to the book of Esther with me. And we are on week five in what is a nine or ten week study through this book. And we've been um, going just chapter by chapter um, really trying to pay attention to just how the author of Esther, uh, which some scholars believe is, is Mordecai under the inspiration of the scriptures, but we don't know for certain, but just how uh, uh, the, this narrative, this historical narrative has been unfolding and we've been tracing really God's hidden providential hand. We saw that when we went through the book of Ruth, we're seeing that now in the book of Esther as well. And really when we read this book, uh, it, it feel, there's certainly events that we can't even begin to fathom. There's a culture in which we can't even begin to fathom. But one of the things that we um, perhaps can find some common ground with is that oftentimes in our daily comings and goings, we aren't paying attention to God's guiding hand in our lives. And when in reality, the only reason that we're all taking our very next breath right now is because God says, 
breathe. He's, he's very involved in our lives. And in in, 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 even in the very minor details of our lives, he's involved. And we're going to see that, continue to see that each and every week. And we're certainly going to see that here in Esther chapter five. And so I'm going to read the entirety of chapter five as I've been reading the entirety of each chapter. I'm going to pray. I'm going to summarize or, or kind of take note of some things that, that should be of particular interest to us in this chapter. And then we're going to work through our takeaways, which you'll find in your worship guide this morning. And so the author of Esther, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this book preserved by the Holy Spirit, says this. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor. We've seen that phrase a few times, right? She won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Right? Second time, the king's feeling generous here. Verse 7, then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, right? We're on the edge of our seat wondering what it is she's going to say. Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I'll prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Some translations say merry of heart. Right? He could have been happy. He could have been a little tipsy. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was fulfilled with wrath. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and he went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had even advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. This guy has no clue. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again. For your word, we thank you that ultimately your spirit penned it, God, through holy chosen men. 
and that your spirit has preserved it, God, that it's living and active, God, that your spirit can, can help us as we read it and, and uh, help us apply it to ourselves, Lord. So grant us humility, help us to, to draw closer to you, Lord, as a result of spending time in your word and ultimately, God, conform us more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So we, we left off last week with, with Esther requesting that, that Mordecai and, and the Jewish people, and, and then she was going to have this happen as well with her servants around her. She requested that a fast be made for her well-being. Okay, that, that's kind of how we ended last week's um, text. And so she, she was going to appear before the king unsummoned, which was a breaking of the, the law of the land, and it was punishable by death. And so that was the motivation behind, hey, fast for me, because this means my certain death. And our text this morning, it picks up just three days later, is what we see here. So, so time, is, time is now in our text moving quickly. Esther's been married to the king for five years, okay, which means she's been queen for five years, or she's been queen longer than that, but she had been queen, or she had been queen for five years, excuse me, but then nine years total has passed since chapter one of Esther. So now we get to Esther chapter five, three days has passed, the fast that she requested at Esther, in Esther chapter four that we saw last week, it's over, and now Esther faces the king. And it's here that we begin to see the the poise of Esther, if you will. We, we see her, her, her even more than we've seen in previous chapters. We see her, her cunning abilities. We see even her subtlety. In, in, in this chapter, I would liken her to some masterful chess player. Right? The king and Haman, they have no idea what's coming. Right? Esther's kind of playing with them three, three-dimensional chess, if you will. And she plays well under pressure. She plays well, performs well under immense stress. Because remember, again, the backdrop that's facing her is that she would surely die. Okay, that, that's what's going on here in these first couple of verses that we see. She, this fast has happened because she believes certain doom is going to be upon her, especially when this king finds out that not only does she want to preserve the Jewish people in the kingdom eventually. And again, he doesn't even know at this stage in the game that the, Jew, game that the Jewish people are going to be exterminated, but that she herself has hidden her Jewishness and it's going to be exposed now that she really is a part of God's covenant people. And so she resigned herself to die. She says, if I perish, I perish is, is what she says in chapter four. Yet she moves here in our text. She moves selflessly and she moves gracefully and, and even patiently throughout our text this morning. She, she puts her best foot forward. She, she dresses for the most important day in her life as she seeks to intercede on behalf of her people. And when I read royal robes, which is what the text says here in chapter 5, the royal robes that Esther put on, I think of even more so of, of some of the ground that we have covered and just how materialistic this uh, culture is, this kingdom is, the appearance of Esther, it matters to the king. And she comes uh, with these royal robes indicating that she comes dressed like a queen. This is Queen Esther for us here, right? And she plays the, the part of royalty and she does it well. 
Now, we know that appearance isn't the only thing that matters to the king, right? We go back to chapters 1 and 2, submission to whatever it is that he would say uh, or command is also important to him as well. And, and so the fact that respect would be given him, a person that's not respectable, uh, is, is significant. And so, so the, the looks matter here. Uh, her, her, her posture, if you will, toward the king and this wicked kingdom, uh, both of those things are significant. And, and, and in this chapter, we see that she uses both her beauty and her submissiveness, her uh, agreeable spirit, if you will, in dealing uh, with the king. She uses it to her advantage in dealing with the king. And she, 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 again, knows how to play the part. She's learned how to play the part by living in this wicked kingdom for so long. And now she uses what she's learned, perhaps even what she's been nurtured in for so long, to move the king in a particular direction. And our text simply says that when the king saw Queen Esther, and I pointed this out as I was reading it, she won favor. She won favor. Favor. Does that phrase sound familiar, right? We've seen that phrase repeated several times, right? We saw a similar verbiage earlier when Esther competed with other women in the kingdom to, to become the queen. She won the favor of the king, right? She, she won favor everywhere that she went, even. But unlike the pastime of winning favor that Again, in the ground that we have covered, this time Esther, she's doing it truly for a just purpose. She's doing it for a noble purpose. She wins favor to preserve the people of Israel. So she wins the favor of the king. He extends his scepter to her, which is an invitation of sorts. He was saying, I'm not going to kill you. Right? His, his, his scepter pointing out was, was him indicating to Queen Esther you have found favor with me, thus I'm not going to give you the death penalty for showing up in my court unsummoned by me. And so the, 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 the tension of Esther's potential death is quickly abated here just in the first few verses. So the, the king is pleased with Queen Esther, so much so that he offers her up to half of his kingdom, which really was a, a, an expression. We, there's no reason to, be, to, to take that literally here. It, 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 it indicates that the king is, is well-pleased. It indicates that the king is feeling generous. It is, and so it was more of a, a common expression in that day. You see a similar expression as it related to Herod when... Um, uh, when his wife's daughter danced before him as it related to John the Baptist and asking for John the Baptist's head. He says, up to half my kingdom I'll give you. I'm well pleased with you. So this, is a, this was a common expression, if you will, indicating generosity, indicating that, that the king's been pleased. And, and, I, and what's interesting to me here is, is that Esther, she didn't just spill the beans right out of the gate. Right? She doesn't just come out and say it at that invitation that she gets from the king. And, and I think some of the customs of the time certainly are lost on us. And even the intensity of the situation is difficult for us to feel. But it seems that Esther, she, she had caught the king in a generous mood. He seemed to be happy. And it, and it seems like she could have been you know, forthright about Haman's plot 
But in Esther's mind, that wasn't the, that wasn't the way to save the people of Israel. That wasn't the way to save even herself. It wasn't strategic, it seems. So she goes with what in my mind seems to be the scenic route, if you will, right? She, she's subversive in her approach. And, and there are times in life where being subversive, being more subtle, it does the most good in the long run, right? There's, there's times when that's needed. There's times when that's necessary. And then there's times in life when, when you need to be more blunt and you need to be more direct, right? And, and it's called reading the room, right? Or, or, or being sensitive to where people are and, and how best to help them along the, the desired, the, the, the end goal, if you will. And so, so Esther kind of reads the room. Yes, the king is in a generous mood, but it's still not the right time. She's subtle. She's subversive. One commentator speaks of, of Esther's subversiveness this way. It says this, Esther was playing the king like a trophy fish, she was taking her time. She wasn't rushing to reel him into her net. She was carefully maneuvering him into a position where he would be virtually obligated to do whatever she asked without his even being aware that he had been hooked. Right? I, I think that's exactly right. Again, Esther's playing chess here. Right? She knows how this kingdom Work. She knows the inner workings of the kingdom well, and she's using it, or, or, or rather, God is using Esther to use the king, right? God's using Esther to advance, and again, this is God's hidden providential hand that we're seeing guiding Esther and, and even guiding Ahasuerus, Xerxes, in a particular direction. We see God using this entire situation to advance good redemptive purposes through the inner workings, through the, 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 the politics, if you will, of this wicked kingdom. Now, Esther, she's contrasted in chapter 5 here with Mordecai. Okay, if Esther is subtle, if Esther is subversive, Mordecai is the complete op- opposite, right? He's not subtle. He, he's direct. He's blunt. He's landing blows left and right on on Haman. He's, he's publicly humiliating Haman. Right? Mordecai's stubbornness and his outright just defiance, it infuriates Haman. And as we'll see, the Lord uses Mordecai's head-on defiance to also advance his good purposes in this wicked kingdom. But back to Esther for just a moment. Okay? Instead of going, to, going straight to accusing Haman, she holds a banquet. Right? The, the, the guests that she invites are the men who share drinks in chapter 3, as this wicked edict went out throughout all the land, all right, Haman and the king. And at this banquet, the king asks Esther publicly again, or you see him ask twice. He's feeling generous twice. He says, what do you want? All right, and he affirms that, that, that he will give her whatever it is that she wants. Right, now, instead of answering the question even here, Esther requests another banquet be held the following day, and it's there that she promises, I will tell you what it is that that I won't. I'll tell you why it is that I risk my life to speak with you uh, to, uh, in, in, to the next day. So after the first banquet, Hominy's feeling good. He, according to our text, is joyful and glad at heart until he sees Mordecai's defiance 
right, for the second time. The first time, his response was to send that wicked edict out, right? Now, the second time, he sees Mordecai and perhaps thinks Mordecai now, you know, he's learned the news of the edict that his people on a particular day are going to be exterminated, and, and he thinks that maybe Mordecai would be submissive or even scared of him in light of the edict. But the edict only fuels Mordecai's boldness. It only fuels Mordecai's posture toward Haman. He doesn't bow. He doesn't respect Haman. Right? As, as, as again, we, we kind of looked at Haman, the, the position that he held was the equivalent, again, of like a prime minister. And, and, and Mordecai refuses to tremble before him. And, and this disrespect inwardly enrages Haman. The author, the, the Hebrew author of Esther, again, perhaps Mordecai, gives us this rare glimpse into what's going on in the heart of one of the characters of this story. Right? We see what's going on in the heart. We see on the outside that Haman, he's, he's controlled. The text says that he's restrained, but his heart is full of rage. Haman's so full of rage that, that in an insecure act that rivals that of Ahasuerus, of the, of the king, he calls his wife and friends over so that he can go on and on and on, just insecurely bragging about his materials, he even brags about his sons, not in such a way where he's proud of his sons, but perhaps in such a way that he, the, his name will be propagated in that way. He brags about his promotion to being a prime minister. He even brags about being invited by the queen to dine with her and the king, right? The queen that he doesn't know is Jewish at the time. And then he moves from bragging to sulking, right? To kids, that sulking is like pouting, right? He's, he's kind of pouting here. He has, he has a bad attitude, if you will. And, and he's, he's pouting about Mordecai's rebellion, and, and together with his wife and his friends, they decide to, to hang Mordecai, to, to expedite his death. That day can't come soon enough for Haman. And, and perhaps in, in them building these gallows, which is how our chapter ends, they're going to make an example as to what happens when you cross the, the prime minister of the land, if you will. Now, a few things, and as always, these aren't the only things that we could pull from this passage, but a few takeaways that you'll find in your worship guide. And kids, if you've got a little bulletin, you can follow along in, in your takeaways too, and you can write in the fill-in-the-blanks what these takeaways are if you look at your mom and dad's bulletin. But the first takeaway of this is this. Inward sin is deadly. Inward sin is deadly. Right? So, so Haman here, right, the villain of this story, the bad guy, he, he restrained his outward actions because it was prudent to do so at the time, but his heart was, was plotting wickedness, right? In, inside of him, there was rage. There was anger. Right? He, he sowed bitterness in his very soul, which is, is, is poison to sow bitterness, to allow bitterness to, to grow roots inside of you. It's poisonous to you. And, and this led even, as we know, and as we'll see in a few weeks, to his ultimate, ultimate demise, to the ultimate demise of, of Haman. Now, we need to, what we need to see is the seriousness here 
right? If, if inward sin is deadly and not just our outward observable behavior, if inward sin is deadly, we need to see the seriousness behind us needing new hearts. We need new hearts. Behavior change isn't the target. That's not the target. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 15, starting with verse 18. What comes out of the mouth, it comes from where? From the, from the heart, right? It proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Out of the heart comes murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. What is he going through here? He's going through the law of God here, right? These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands, which is what the religious leaders were concerned about, that doesn't defile anyone. The appearance, what's on the outside, isn't what makes you right with God, right? Modifying our behavior, washing up, getting clean, cleaning ourselves, right? That's not what makes us right with God, right? In reality, even behavior modification, even if we change our behavior, right, what, what people see or how people see us on the outside, we can't even do that for the long haul, Right? That's not sustainable for us. Cracks are going to show eventually. Right? We learn from Haman that we can give the appearance of self-control, which I think the author of Esther is trying to point out for us, the Holy Spirit of God is trying to point out to us, is that we can give the appearance of self-control while inwardly being devoured by our sins. So inward sin, it's deadly. Mark Jones, the author of the book, Knowing Sin, that I recommended to you last week, he says this. He says, sin makes, right? This is, this is a consequence of sin, okay? Sin makes the soul diseased. It blinds the mind. It hardens the heart. It disorders the will. It steals the strength, and it dampens the affections. For who? For Christ, and for the things that Christ loves. Right? If this is what sin does to us, then we certainly can't overcome sin on our own. Right? We certainly just can't flippantly wash up. Right? We certainly can't come here for Lord's Day worship and just put our Sunday best on and think that that makes us right with God. Right? This is why the gospel of God by the Holy Spirit of God, regenerates, which kids means make new. Why the Holy Spirit of God needs to make our hearts new. Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord speaking through the prophet Ezekiel says this in chapter 36, I will give you, and this is a promise here, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Right, a, a soft, tender, sensitive heart is what he's saying here. Right? And he says, I will put my spirit within you. Right? If you're a Christian, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Right? And, he, and, and, and here's what flows from that. And calls you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right? Our obedience to the law of God 
it flows from the Lord saving us. It doesn't flow to the Lord saving us. It's downstream from the Lord saving us. And we, and we, we got to make sure that we don't confuse that. And parents, we got to make sure that we don't confuse that in the way that we speak to our children when we're trying to correct behavior, right? We can't trust in our own righteousness because our own righteousness really is a facade. Right? We can't dress ourselves up on the outside and deceive ourselves into thinking that we're right with God. We can't perform our way into heaven. And again, and we can often do that. We can often do that by, again, maybe trying to give the appearance of some self-control on the outside while, like Haman, there's all kinds of turbulent, sinful things going on on the inside that'll eventually come out that God knows about anyways. We do that sometimes when we compare ourselves to other people, right? I'm not as bad as what I know that person's doing. So certainly, if I stand before God one day, and we'll talk about standing before God in just a moment, but certainly if I stand before God one day and I'm standing by that guy and God compares and contrasts us, I'll be good to go, right? It's not the case, right? Because the standard's holiness, and who's holy? God. You're compared to God. And if you don't measure up, you're in big trouble, and, and here's the fact of the matter. You don't measure up. I don't measure up. Like, we do not measure up. We need a new heart. We need a new heart. Secondly, all people need wise biblical counsel. All people need wise biblical counsel. And again, kids, this is another part that you can write down in your, your bulletin that you have. But Hominy, he throws himself a party that while not as lavish as the 180-day banquet, if you will, that the king throws, the motive behind it, the heart behind it, is exactly the same, right? He, he threw this party, he, 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 he threw it to serve his own vanity, is what we have going on here. He, he threw the party to serve his own idols, his own idolatry, right? Haman wanted to be revered. He, he wanted to be feared. He wanted to be respected. He wanted to be impressive in the eyes of other people. Again, we get a peek into his heart in this chapter. And he seemed to be getting what he wanted from absolutely everybody except from Mordecai, which is why it's significant that Mordecai was outright and defiant. Because through Mordecai's disobedience, through his, his own disrespect, if you will, and the way this wicked kingdom functioned, he brought Haman face to face with his God. Right. Mordecai refused to feed Haman's idol. So Haman, he throws a party and he surrounds himself with people that will, if you will, feed the beast. That's what we see him doing here. And think about that a little bit more for a moment and ask yourself the question, Right, as, as we think about what's going on here, what do you do or where do you go when you don't get what you want? Right, what do you do or where do you go when you don't get what you want? Right? When you're raging on the inside, like Haman here, we've all experienced it. But when you're raging on the inside, 
where do you go? When you're anxious on the inside, where do you go? Do you feed the beast of your anger? Do you feed the beast of your anxieties? Do you feed the beast of your lusts? What did Haman really need? What did he really need? He needed to be confronted. He needed friends. He needed to be confronted. His idols needed to be addressed and, and, melt, and, and met with the healing balm of God's covenant promise. Right? Haman needed to be saved. He needed to be saved. Right? Someone who really, really cared about him, right? cared enough to be honest with him, should have showed him his sins. Right? Should have showed him his idols. Right, should have cared about him enough to be honest with him and, and calling to repentance and calling to faith in the Lord. Instead, he was affirmed in his idolatry. And, and his environment was carefully curated by him to ensure that his idols would be affirmed. Right? Carefully curated. Right? And, and this was not only devastating ultimately to his physical safety, but it was devouring to his soul as well. Again, we'll see this as the, the story goes on. But a lot of times, we can carefully curate our environment, our surroundings, to insulate ourselves from accountability, to flee accountability. Right? We can even do that while given the appearance of being in community. Right? We can be in community and never be vulnerable with other people. Never be honest with other people. Never give people the opportunity to be able to speak into our lives. We can carefully curate our surroundings. And what we need is trusted brothers and sisters in our lives that love us way too much to see us be devoured by the world, to see us be devoured by our own flesh, to see us be devoured by the devil, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. We we need truth-tellers in our lives. We need truth-tellers in our lives, if you're surrounded by people that always agree with you, that that seem to solidify your thinking, you're in spiritual danger. If you bristle or ignore the godly correction of others, you're in spiritual danger. If you don't have people in your life that are honest and ready to confront you in love, you're in spiritual danger. If you have people that let you wallow in self-pity and sins, like Haman did you're in spiritual danger. The the Bible gives us a different picture of what our relationships with one another should look like as it relates to soul care. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, "...take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart." Here's where an evil, unbelieving heart leads to, "...leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort, encourage, admonish," is how it can be translated in the Greek. One another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The Apostle Paul even tells the the Roman church in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and And then here's what's interesting, able to instruct one another. Again, the same word as you, able to admonish one another, able to counsel, if you will, one another. Because of the all-sufficient word, because of the Holy Spirit of God living in you. If you don't don't have people in your life 
preferably in the context of this local church that love you in this way. Let me encourage you to, to prayerfully find one. Find one. Right? Cultivate that relationship. Don't wait on it to come to you. Go to it. Right? Go to it. Go to that person. And it, if you're an affirmer, much like Haman's wife and friends patting someone on the back as they, they head, you know, their lives head toward destruction, repent of that. Con- confess that to the Lord if you've been a bad friend. Confess to the person you've been a bad friend to that you have been a bad friend and decide today to truly walk in love toward your brother or sister in Christ Jesus. So how can we, how can we cultivate that practically here at Deer Park Fellowship? And I, I'll give you the first step because there's different ways that we can go about cultivating something like this. This is the first step. Make time for one another. Make time for one another. We make time for the things that are important to us. We make time for the things that are important to us. We need to be invested in each other's lives. Right? And there's, there's all kinds of different ways you can do that. Right? You, can, you can come to the monthly stay and eat that we have to try to get to know some people you don't know. Be hospitable. Right? One of the ways in which the world knows that we love Christ is by demonstrating that we have love for one another. Right? Be, be hospitable. Invite people into your home for a meal. Go on play dates together if you have young kids. Join a small group. Right? Cult, the point is cultivate, cultivate friendships. You, you would be surprised by the spiritual health that follows from cultivating relationships in the context of the local church. Don't isolate yourself. Put, put yourself out there. Be determined to dig deep roots. Right? Generally speaking, we don't persevere in the faith on an island. God has organized our lives in such a way that we need one another. We need one another. We're, that's why we're a corporate people. That's why we're going to talk about that at the Lord's Supper, but we're the body of Christ. And we need to love one another. Right? In order to do that, we've got to know one another. We've got to know one another. So be approachable. Linger. Linger. Be hospitable. And then finally... Kids, if you're taking notes, judgment will come. Judgment will come. Haman built the the gallows for Mordecai. He built them for Mordecai, but God allowed Haman to build the gallows so that he could exercise his judgment over Haman and send a clear message both of covenant faithfulness to his own people and a warning to those that were not his people. And again, we'll spend more time on this when we read of Haman's demise in about two weeks. But what we need to internalize is that nobody, nobody, nobody escapes God's justice. Which means that nobody escapes God's judgment. Absolutely no one. We're, we are either dealt, gloriously dealt with in Christ Jesus and, and praise God for that. We're either, we either stand before God and we're dealt with as a people who are covered by Christ alone. Or we come face to face with God's wrath for our sin. And, and while we may get a glimmer of God's justice when civil magistrates act truly as his deacon, as his servants, and punish true evildoers, and while we may read 
of Haman's trip to the gallows in a couple of weeks, those things pale in comparison to the coming justice and thus judgment of God for those who repent, who, for those who refuse to repent of their sin, for those who refuse to trust in Christ exclusively for salvation, for those who refuse to get their sins forgiven, for those whose hearts have never been regenerated, have never been made new, that will be a terrifying day to to stand before the triune God who is holy, 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 without representation, without Christ Jesus. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who, see, him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Your your name is either written in the book of life, which means that you're judged based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Your name is either written there or you will be judged by what the Apostle John calls these other books, which is your biography, which means your sins, which, and, 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 and you'll be judged based on the uncompromising standard of God's holiness. Not other people, right? not your good deeds versus your bad deeds. The standard is God, and you'll be found guilty if you're judged by your own works. So if you're not in Christ this morning, right, I want to I impress upon you by God's grace the seriousness of your sin. Right, your, your sin is worthy of an eternal hell. All of our sin is worthy of an eternal hell. And, and that's where anyone not in Christ is headed. That's where anyone is headed who's not trusting in Jesus, but you can be forgiven. Right? You, can be, you can be judged by the works of the one who's truly holy. If you flee to Christ, if you trust in Christ, if you rest in Christ, right? he's our hope in this life. He's our hope in the life to come. So we see from Esther 5 that our inward sin is deadly. Right? We see the need for wise biblical counsel, which is comes when we're surrounded by people who love us and who respectfully, gracefully will tell us the truth. And we're reminded that judgment is coming and that our only hope is to be found in Christ. And so if you're in Christ this morning, praise God for that. If you're not in Christ this morning, myself, the elders, I'm sure plenty of people in this room would love to talk to you more about what that means. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you pursued us. God, we thank you that the words from the prophet Ezekiel, God, were fulfilled by you, the turner of our heart.
And Lord, we confess that Christ is really our only hope. God, we confess that that we're too sinful to fix ourselves, to change ourselves, God, and we thank you that you really did seek us and save us in Jesus. And God, I do pray for those here that maybe don't know you, God, that your Holy Spirit would impress upon them their need for Christ. And we trust you, and we love you, and we thank you that you're so good. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.